This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. All right, if you're ready to study God's Word together this morning, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This morning we are going to conclude our fall teaching series called Threads as we've looked at the values that weave together to make us the, body, the church community that we are. And I hope that you've been encouraged by this uh, fall's teaching as we've gone through these different values. And uh, today we're going to end on generosity. Generosity. And this is one of the values that really holds us together here at Mill City Church. We believe that as followers of Jesus Christ, we most reflect our God and Father when we are generous because He is so lavishly generous towards us. And last week we looked at service and how our actions, that we should be people who are called to action in serving our neighbors, serving our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But today we're going to be talking about our resources and that not only does God want us to take our, our gifts and our hands and our feet and use them towards the good of our brothers and sisters or towards the, the world around us, but he also wants to take our possessions and our resources and to use those to advance his kingdom and also to provide for real needs. Generosity, just like service, is one of those things that societally speaking is very popular But oftentimes, again, there's a chasm between what we'll say with our mouths and maybe what we do with our pocketbooks. Maybe you're familiar with the old phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins. But there's a second one like it. He who dies with the most toys still dies. In other words, you cannot take anything that you own today with you. And so it would, do, it would do us well this morning to ponder that in our hearts and to think, how are we using what we have? How are we investing what we have for the sake of something so much bigger and more long-lasting than, than we ourselves are? I, I'm reminded of an example from history. Alfred Nobel. Alfred Nobel Uh, In in 1888, the Swedish chemist who made his fortune inventing and producing dynamite, his brother Ludwig had died in France. But as he held the newspaper in his hands, he was shocked and, and 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 grief over his brother was now compounded by dismay. He had just read an obituary in a French newspaper. Not his brother's, but his. An editor had confused the brothers. The headline read, The Merchant of Death is Dead. Alfred Nobel's obituary described a man who had gotten rich by helping people kill one another. And shaken by this appraisal of his life, Nobel resolved to use his wealth to change his legacy. And when he died eight years later, he left more than $9 million to fund awards for people whose work benefited benefited humanity. And the awards became known as the Nobel Prizes. Randy Alcorn, writing in response to this account, says this, Alfred Nobel had a rare opportunity to look at the assessment of his life at its end and still have chance to change it. Before his life was over, Nobel made sure he had invested his wealth in something of lasting value. Brothers and sisters, you nor I possess the resources that Alfred Nobel 
possessed. At least I don't think. But the reality is, you and I can have the same sober reflection upon our lives today as he did. Is to think about what are we passing on? In what are we investing? And in what do we find our greatest treasure? And when you think about what he did, when he recognized the fleeting nature of his life, and recognizing of, of wanting to pass on his wealth and his resources as something more lasting, it makes me think about what we have opportunity to do. Each one of us possess, we possess resources. We have money. We have possessions. And we can also stop and think of how are we going to pass this on. But across the board, when we look at American Christians, when we read the stats, we find that we aren't very good at this as a whole. As a matter of fact, when we look at the the internal uh, numbers of American Christianity, when we look at tithers, those Christians who would give 10% at least of their income each week uh, towards the church and towards gospel causes, tithers make up only about 10 to 25% of an average congregation. Only 10 to 25%. And when you look across the spectrum at American Christian at, at American, sorry, at Americans at large, only 5% of Americans tithe. With 80% giving only 2% of their income. And then when you go much more specifically to Christians, Christians are only giving at about 2.5% per capita, not very much different than our non-Christian neighbors. But think about this contrast for a moment. Today, the average Christian is giving 2.5% per capita. During the Great Depression, Christians gave almost 3.5% per capita. So what does it say about Christians in the American West That we have more resources than ever before in the history of mankind, but we give at a lower percentage today than we even did during the Great Depression. Now, I know today that these numbers are numbers at large, and, and, and it doesn't apply to a lot of you in this room. Here's the great news. Mill City Church gives at a higher per capita rate than the average Christian or average church does in America. And so I want to affirm you today Our giving is strong. You are great givers as as Mill City Church. But here's what I want to always challenge you with. Don't just sit on that. Excel still more. Keep doing it more and more. Keep doing what you're doing and allow the scriptures today to speak to you. Because here's, here's what I want to do. I want to tie it back to the scriptures now. In the first century, God also talked to his first century followers about being givers. And there was something called the Jerusalem Collection. And you see this over and over and over again in the New Testament. At the end of his third mission, Paul was preoccupied with this collection for the Jerusalem Christians. They were in need. They they were cash-strapped. They were facing oppression and persecution. And what Paul was preoccupied with was going around to the different cities where churches had been planted and calling upon them to be radical sacrificial givers for the sake of their brothers and sisters in another part of the world. 
He dealt with this collection in every epistle written during this period. Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Romans. And by far the most extensive treatment of the subject is that in 2nd Corinthians, where we're going to be today. Paul seems to have encountered the most resistance to this sacrificial collection from the Corinthians. Surprise, surprise. They had a lot of other issues going on too. It may as well have been money as well. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to read a pretty extensive passage of Scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians 9. And we're not going to be able to go through every single verse of this today, but what we are going to do is we're going to look at at least three big picture truths that I believe the Bible teaches us here about giving and about being generous and how this should personify our lives and how it should be a simple posture of our lives as we live as a Christian and as what it means for us as a church. So let's pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 1. Paul writes this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there... It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now skip over to chapter 9, verse 1. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you, For being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you. And and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised. So that it may be ready as a willing gift. Not as an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Can we get personal in here this morning? I love these two chapters of Scripture. I love these two chapters of Scripture because it shows how interdependent God has wired His people. And one of the primary ways in which God provides for His people is through His people. And that we cannot simply look at our pocketbooks, our checking accounts, or our credit rating, or, or our debt-to-income ratio, and think that that's just simply our business and no one else's. What these two, passages, two chapters of Scripture begin to show us is that our wealth and our finances are given to us by God so that they will not only impact us or our families, but also help supply the needs of other Christians. And we're going to see as we make our way through this, especially as we get to our final point today, of just how interdependent we are for one another. And it's not just financial, it's also spiritual. But let's look at some of, the, some of our outline this morning. Here's the first biblical foundation regarding Christian giving and generosity that we must learn today. And it's the foundation of that here at Mill City Church. Number one, God is the source of all your money. God is the source of all your money. When you look at verse 1 of chapter 8, he says the grace of God has been given. That word grace means gift. It actually means an undeserved gift. Meaning that any conversation that we begin to have about money, generosity, giving, must first recognize that God is the source of all of the money to begin with. You see this in so many other places in the scriptures, but if you just go to chapter 9, verse 10, it says that He, God, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. This is the picture we see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And it, this, this helps us understand a two-pronged foundational approach to everything that you and I work for and have. Number one, God is the owner. God is the owner. This is echoed throughout all of the scriptures. Let me give you just a sampling. In Psalm 24, verse 1, the scriptures write that, say this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, all that fills it. This means that any resource that we have, 
whether it's a natural resource or a man-made resource, regardless of what we have or what we use to build something or make something with, everything on the earth, the Bible says, finds its genesis, finds its source in God. He owned it first. There is nothing that you or I can make out of something that we ourselves made. We're taking all of God's resources and we're making our stuff with it. God is the owner. Haggai 2.8 says this, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. All the riches, all, all of the treasure, all of the pirate's booty belongs to God. He is the source of it. Deuteronomy 8.18, You shall remember the Lord your God, I love this line, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. If you don't know that passage, I would encourage you to know that passage. I would encourage you to underline that passage. You might even want to stick a, a, a post-it note in your checkbook and just put that in there so that you are constantly reminded that it is God who gives you power to get wealth. Your company, the treasurer of your company, your employer, your boss, the government, I'm not sure who signs your paycheck. But regardless of who signs your paycheck, or regardless of whose account your paycheck is derived from, it is God who ultimately is the source of all that you have, and it is God who is giving you the power to attain wealth, regardless of how much or how little you may have in the bank. He is the owner. And number two, you are the manager. He is the owner, you are the manager. You are not the owner of your wealth. That's a radical truth for us to know this morning, brothers and sisters. It's not yours. It belongs to God. And here's where we begin to see what our role is here in Matthew 25. If you'll go back with me to Matthew 25, I'm going to read you a parable of Jesus Instead of giving you a long illustration of what this means, I'm just going to let Jesus give us the illustration. Because those are what, that's what parables are. They're, they're illustrations. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two cat talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five. Here I have made five more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forth saying, master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. 
So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For to everyone who who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now we may read this. We may say, Jesus, it's a little harsh, don't you think? I mean, he was just trying to play it safe. He was just trying to prepare for a rainy day. Okay, so he wasn't as shrewd, so he wasn't as wise as the other guys. Here's the picture. You and I can approach our finances, approach our money very similarly as the third servant. We can pretend as if this is all we're ever getting. And so what we do is we go bury it. We put it in a safe account. And we think if we can just save it until that last rainy day, that somehow we're going to make it all the way to the end. And what ultimately we're doing is we're trying to preserve our own lives. And we're trying to be the masters of our own destiny. And God is telling us through that uh, that parable, there are many other things that he's saying here, but for the, for the focus of our discussion this morning, he's ultimately showing us that it's not ultimately yours, and he expects that what he gives to you, he's ultimately entrusting to you. It's as if you are managing a piece of God's portfolio, right? I mean, I mean, don't we, I mean, many of us have accountants, or, or some of us have financial advisors. Or some of us have learned through the years of how to manage our money in good ways. And we have people maybe who even manage our portfolios, right? Well, we'll think about it like this. All of your portfolios are ultimately God's portfolios. Because he's the ultimate owner of everything and you are simply his steward, his manager. And so process that as you budget and as you spend. It's ultimately not mine. It's ultimately God's. And what this does now is it radically changes our approach to money. It radically changes our approach to generosity. It radically changes our whole mindset and worldview about our accounts. Because God is both the source and owner of everything we have. And so we must manage it in a way that, yes, is responsible. But also that is very strategic for the advance of his kingdom here on earth. God is the source of all your money. Now let's get back to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Not only do we see that truth, but we also see this truth. Is that since God is the source, and since God is the owner, it would make sense that he would want us to take that which he's entrusted to us and to use it in such a way, not only for our benefit and for our family's benefit, but also for the benefit of his missional advance in in meeting needs in the world, but also in spreading his name across the globe. And so here's where we get to the second truth. Not only is God the source of all your money, Jesus is the example of all your giving. He is the example for all your giving. When you look at verse 9, again at chapter 8, in chapter 8, Paul gives the reasoning why 
the, the Corinthian Christians should be sacrificially giving to this Jerusalem collection, sacrificing for their fellow brothers and sisters. He's going to give us the primary motivating reason. And it's not because it's simply the right thing to do. It's not simply because these people are in need. Ultimately, it's because it will follow the example of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake... He became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He appeals to the example of Jesus. He appeals to Jesus. You give sacrificially ultimately because Jesus gave sacrificially to you. You follow his example. You give radically because Jesus gave radically. And then what we're going to learn here is we're going to learn at least three truths of how to do this. And it's all going to go back to Jesus. Number one, you should give joyfully and lavishly. So let's look at this practically. With Jesus being your example, one, you should give joyfully and lavishly. I want to, I want to show you this in the text. In chapter 9, verse 7, we read this very famous verse in the Scriptures. For God loves a cheerful giver. Donald Whitney says this. One man said there are three kinds of giving. Grudge giving, duty giving, and thanksgiving. Grudge giving says, I have to. Duty giving says, I ought to. Thanksgiving says, I want to. Some people give because they say they can't keep it. Others give because they say they owe it. But there are always those who give because they say, they can't help it. In chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, if you'll go back, what we're going to learn is we're going to learn that the Macedonian Christians didn't have many resources. When you look in um, verse 2, the churches in Macedonia, the Macedonian churches were just very lavishly generous. And verse 2 says this about them, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, do you see that? Joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Here's what we learned about the Macedonian Christians. They were dirt poor. I, I, I know that there are a couple of you in this room who are dirt poor. So were the Macedonian Christians. They were dirt poor as well. But did you see the language in verse 2? Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. They were abundantly joyful, joyful in the midst of being very poor and impoverished. And Paul says that those two things came together and they lavishly gave, not only according to their means, but beyond their means. So we, what we're going to learn from both chapter 9 as well as chapter 8 is that in the kingdom of God, God is concerned with both the attitude and the amount given. Both the attitude and the amount are both important to God and His economy for His believers. It's not only what you give, it's also the attitude from which 
you get it, give it. And we're also going to learn here that we're called to equal sacrifice regardless of income. This isn't about the wealthy, the 1% versus the 99%. You see, that's what our culture does, doesn't it? It, For those people who are wealthy, you're automatically evil and wicked in our country's eyes. And, And if you're impoverished, you're automatically blessed and you're favorable in our country's eyes. But yet, isn't this weird irony that everybody still wants to be rich? I mean, we have made the wealthy the enemy, but yet we all want to be wealthy. Could it be that we've made the wealthy the enemy because we're jealous and envious of what they have? You see, the Bible starts exposing our wicked wicked hearts and our sinful hearts. But here's what the Bible teaches us. That regardless of whether you have $5 in your bank account today, or whether you have a $5 million trust fund set up, is that each and every one of us as Christians, each and every one of us is called to be lavish in our giving. And here's why. Here's why we are to be both joyful and lavish in our giving towards God and others. Is because when we give joyfully and when we give lavishly, we reflect Jesus. You don't believe me? Let's go to the text. In Hebrews chapter 12, It says this about Jesus, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Even in enduring the cross and giving you and me the greatest thing our souls desire and have need of. It says that Jesus did that joyfully. And so he gave on the cross from a posture and an attitude of joy towards you and me. And Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that he gave his grace to us. And it says that he lavished his grace upon us. He lavished his blessings upon us. So when I tell you that the scriptures call you and me to give joyfully and lavishly, we're doing that because it reflects the example of Jesus I remember when I was in college, I worked at a Christian bookstore in my college town, and it was a, it was a locally owned store. It wasn't a chain or franchise, a, a chain. And uh, I remember my boss there. I, I remember a line that he used to always say. Now, I'm not sure how biblical this is or how right this is, but I still remember it. Everybody would always come in, and especially the pastors from the churches. We as pastors are the worst at this. And, and they would always come in asking for a discount. And they would always look at, the, at my manager and they would say, Glenn, I'm just wondering, can, can you give me a, can you, any discount on this book or any discount on this, on this church supply? And he would always turn to them and he would say, let me ask you a question. When you pray to God, do you ask God for a discount blessing? I mean, that's one way to conduct your business, right? But there, but there really is an element of truth there in what Glenn was saying. It, when, when we come before God, we are constantly asking God, bless us, bless me, provide for me. But oftentimes when we reciprocate that and we think about our own generosity and giving, we're looking for the discount. We're looking to shortchange. We're looking to give the least amount possible. And what I want you to see today is I want you to see the connection between our joyful giving, our lavish, generous giving, and that we're ultimately reflecting our Savior Jesus when we do that. We want to give 
from the same attitude and posture that he gave, and we want to give in the same lavish ways in which he gave. Number two, not only should you give joyfully and lavishly, number two, you should give regularly and spontaneously. You should give both regularly and spontaneously. Now, in the whole context of, of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you would think that this is pretty much spontaneous giving because this is a specific need in a specific place and these Corinthian Christians are being asked to contribute to it. And so you may think about it like this. There may be a special missions offering that we are taking. There may be, may be a mission trip that we are going on. And it's a specific need at a specific point in time. And you are asked to give towards it. And that would be spontaneous giving. And I believe that God wants us to spontaneously give. That we give in direct reaction to a specific need that we know of and that we're in a position to help. But I want to go beyond the spontaneous Because spontaneous giving by itself, listen to this, is haphazard giving at best and could be disobedient giving at worst. Did you hear that? Spontaneous giving by itself is haphazard giving at best and disobedient giving at worst. But most of us as Americans give spontaneously. We just kind of just reach into our pocket and we'll just throw whatever in the basket or someone asks for help and we'll just reach into our wallet and we'll just give. If that's all of your giving, then you are missing a big piece of the giving puzzle and generosity puzzle that we see in the New Testament. Let me show you a couple of places. Look back at 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. So we just looked at for God loves a cheerful giver, but let's look at the first part of that passage. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And so even in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, there seems to be some sort of preparatory work in our hearts to decide what we're going to give. But let me take it a step further. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, another place that Paul talks about this Jewish collection, look at what he says in verse Verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Here's what he's going to give us instruction. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Here's the picture. Just from this little glimpse in the scriptures, we see that giving and generosity from Christians should be both planned and reactionary. It should be regular and it should be spontaneous. And and that's the picture for you and for me as we give. A faithful disciple of Jesus faithfully gives regularly. Now, for some of us, we may decide to to figure out exactly how much we're going to give. It could be 10%. That should be your starting point. I'm going to talk a little bit more on this in just a minute. It could be 15 or 20% or or more. It's got to be what God has laid upon your heart based on your financial state and where you are right now during this season. But you, you set that aside. And it could be every week. You, you divide your monthly income up into four weeks and you bring it in every week during the offertory time or you set it up on the online recurring giving and it just naturally comes out regularly every week 
every two weeks or every month. It could be cash, it could be check, it could be direct debit from your bank account. We have options, right, in the United States of America in the 21st century. But that, that is a discipline that the Bible would teach us to do. That is our regular giving. But then there is spontaneous giving, where there's a specific need at a specific point in time where we can respond to on top of our regular giving. And, the, and what Paul teaches the Corinthians is he teaches us both of those things. Now let's talk about tithing for just a quick moment. We don't talk about tithing here at Mill City a lot. Now if you don't know what a tithe is, it means a tenth. And it goes all the way back to the Old Testament times. If you want to look at Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Uh, it, that, that passage is going to tell, command God's people to bring the, the whole tithe into the storehouse. And we as New Testament Christians, we focus on that number 10. I've even heard pastors say this, and I think it's, I think it's completely, totally irresponsible to say things like this. I've heard pastors say things like, God's a really good deal maker. All he's asking for is 10%. You get to keep the other 90. That's erroneous. It's completely antithetical to the New Testament. God is not about a, a percentage. He's about your heart. He's about lavishness. He's about sacrifice. That's why here at, at Mill City, we teach sacrificial giving. And the reason why we teach sacrificial giving is because in the New Testament, you see it over and over again. In Luke 3.11, he says this, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. In other words, just give to a need that you see. And then in, uh, he later affirms Zacchaeus for giving away half of his goods and commands another guy to sell everything he has and give it to the poor. When you look at Acts 2 and Acts 4, you see the early church doing the exact same thing. Here's what I believe the New Testament teaches. The New Testament, I believe, would understand that giving at least 10% is a foregone conclusion if you're in God's economy. But it shouldn't stop there. We should be people of sacrificial, lavish giving just as our Savior Jesus Christ sacrificially and lavishly gives towards us. Jesus Christ didn't give us 10% of Himself. He gave us His entire self. And so we give Him our entire selves. Randy Alcorn goes on to say this in his book, The Treasure Principle. Tithing isn't the ceiling of giving, it's the floor. It's not the finish line of giving, it's just the starting blocks. Tithes can be the training wheels to launch us into the mindset, skills, and habits of grace giving. Now some of us today, let's break this down. Some of us today, we just need to start at 10%. You're not doing that right now, and you should be. Regardless of your income. I think one of the greatest examples in my life is my 84-year-old grandmother. She has no retirement. My grandfather didn't have wealth at all. All he left her was a Social Security check. That's it. And she lives in a little 800-square-foot box in rural Mississippi. But she gets that Social Security check every month, and my grandmother writes out a check for a little over 10% every single month. She can barely afford groceries. She can barely pay the electric bill in the hot summers to run the air conditioning, but my grandmother's going to give that regardless every month. 
Some of you just need to start there this morning. But then there are others of you that God has just radically blessed. And you are making far more money than you ever thought you'd be making at this point in your life. Or you're in your retirement years and and you have a lot stored up. And perhaps for some of us, simply giving 10% would be disobedient to God because he's lavished you with so much more. And I want you to think about this, especially for so many people who are just starting out in your careers right now. What if every time you get a raise for the rest of your life, rather than increasing your standard of living, you also increased your standard of giving? Did you hear that? What if not just focusing on your standard of living increase, but you also started thinking about how can I increase my standard of giving? And so not just giving more because you give more because 10% uh, 10% of 5,000 is more than 10% of 2,000. But what if as you get a raise for the rest of your life, every time you get a raise, you also increased your percentage from 10% to 12%, from 12 to 15%. And perhaps God would just lavishly bless you in your life and your career financially. And you might even find yourself giving a third of your income or more away to mission causes and for the sake of gospel work. This is the picture of lavish giving. And this is a picture that we don't see very often in the New Test- in the uh, contemporary church, but we see it in the New Testament church over and over and over again. You should give regularly and spontaneously. And then lastly, very quickly here, you should give sooner rather than later. You should give sooner rather than later. If you look at verses 10 and 11 in 2 Corinthians 8, he says this, And in this matter I give my judgment. It actually benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. In other words, you guys had great intentions. It sounded awesome a year ago for you to do this, but you haven't followed through on it. You know, sometimes we're like this, aren't we? Man, I I want to give lavishly to God. I want to. I want to be about God's mission. I'm just not there yet. I have just a little bit too much debt. My income's not high enough. I want to get to this level of savings first. I want to pay off this bill first. But one day, one day, when I start making a full-time salary, then I'll start giving and giving generously to the Lord. You see, the Corinthians had a lot of great intentions. But Paul said that they didn't follow through on it. He says, now it's time for you to follow through. It's time for your actions today to match what you started talking about a year ago. And for some of us in the room today, it's time for us to recognize that whether we get a $10 allowance every week, whether we're working a part-time job making $500 a month, or whether the God has blessed us with a great career making seventy-five dollars or $100,000 a year, Regardless of where we are in this room today, we should give sooner rather than later. Today's the day for giving. Today is the day of generosity. Because how in the world are you ever going to learn how to manage much in God's kingdom if you don't learn how to manage little? Every one of us is called to equal sacrifice and equal generosity today regardless of our income level. 
So Jesus Christ is our example for all of your giving today. And lastly, here's what I want you to see. Your giving is evidence of God's work inside of you. Your giving is evidence of God's work inside of you. In our closing moments today, I want to look at chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. And I want you to, I want you to see what giving does. Here's what giving does. Giving is going to show that God's work has actually started taking place in your life. Because you are being generous like your Father in heaven is generous. And because God is working inside of you, your actions, your mindset, and your posture all now reflect Him. Here's what it demonstrates. Number one, it demonstrates trust. It demonstrates trust. Verse 6 says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. If you show me a man or a woman, someone older or someone younger, who sows sparingly, that means that you give very little. If you show me someone who gives very little, you're sowing sparingly. And what that means is, is it's demonstrating that you don't really trust very well. You don't trust the Lord. What you're trusting in is you're trusting in your own efforts. You're trusting in your own financial ingenuity. You're trusting in your own security measures. But you see, the person who gives just joyfully and lavishly and and sows bountifully, gives bountifully, what you are demonstrating is basically this. The same place that this came from is the same place the next check's going to come from too. And as he is given to me, I'm going to lavishly give because I'm just going to trust that by doing what he's called me to do, he's always going to take care of me. Brothers and sisters, I can tell you that over and over in the course of my own life, God has blessed me at every turn. And there have been many, being a missionary, my first eight years of living here and raising my own support, there were many months where there was less than, less than $500 in the bank. And, and I didn't know if, if I was going to have rent the next month. But I can tell you, I can tell you this. Never in my life have I never been able to pay my rent or my mortgage. And I can also tell you, brothers and sisters, that ever since I was 16 years old, I remember, ever since I was 16 years old, as best as left up to me and best I can remember, I have always given at least 10% back to the Lord. It's what I was taught when I was a kid after getting my first job. I've always done it. The Lord will provide for you The Lord will, as he trusts you with little, will trust you with more. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who deals bountifully will reap also bountifully. It demonstrates trust. Even as you give your offering today, it would be a great act of worship for you to simply say, Father, thank you for providing for me. I'm expecting you to continue to provide for me as I give this to you. That's a posture of the heart. Number two, it produces fruit. It produces fruit. In verse 8, it says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Do you see this? There's just simply blessing and fruit that comes to your life. 
Now, now this is not prosperity gospel. That's a lie from the pit of hell. This is not a gospel that's saying if you just give a certain amount of money that God's going to make you wealthy or rich. That's not what this text is saying at all. It's saying that as you faithfully obey God and you faithfully sacrificially give, there is just going to be spiritual fruit and spiritual grace that's at work in your life because you are becoming more and more like your Savior. He goes on to say that he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. In other words, when we give and we give lavishly, no matter how little or how great you think it is, God's going to take that. And he is going to multiply it a hundred thousand fold spiritually, even in ways that you can't see. It produces fruit. Number three, it supplies needs. Verse 12 says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Here's the basic truth this is elementary, boys and girls. When you faithfully give, that giving will providentially meet other people's needs. One plus one equals two. It's simple spiritual math this morning. And I wonder if you would think about that. Even as you give your offering today, Father, as I give this, I am expecting you to meet real needs here on planet Earth. Needs of hunger, needs of lostness, needs of gospel advance. Father, through my giving, would you meet real needs? Lastly, it causes gratitude. And here's where I want you to see this great generosity matrix. Okay? Look, look again at, verse thir- at the end of verse 12. He says that not only is it supplying the needs of the saints, I love this part, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. I love this. I love this. As you and I faithfully, lavishly, joyfully give Right here at Mill City Church. Here's what God is then going to do. He's going to spread that out through all of our missionaries we support. He's going to spread that out to the different ministries in Lowell we support. And on our campus where we're reaching students. And then somewhere here in Lowell and literally all over the globe. There are real live people who are hearing the gospel and having needs met. And they don't even know your name. They don't even know who I am. They don't even know about Mill City Church. But they are glorifying God and thanking God because He supplied their needs and their needs were supplied because you and I were faithful on this side of the planet to be faithful to His call for us to be sacrificial and lavish in our giving. Do you see the matrix there? Your faithful giving, my faithful giving, is actually tied to the gratitude and the worship in other people's hearts. Do you see how now, when I began today, I say that our finances, our checkbooks, our debt to income ratio, 
We're all interdependent here in the body of Christ. It's not just your business. It's not just your affairs. Because at first and foremost, all belongs to Him. And since He's the owner, and He has stewarded it to you to manage, now as we manage that portfolio, and we conduct ourselves financially in responsible ways, so that we can lavishly give, we now see how our giving and our financial faithfulness is now tied to the hearts, salvation, gratitude, and worship of other people, many of whom you'll never meet until we see each other face to face in glory one day. Brothers and sisters, that is just supernatural and an awesome thing to think about. So I just wonder today as we get ready to close and we respond to God and what we've read today, I wonder if, number one, this conversation and this teaching today would cause each and every one of us to think about the fact that our giving is so much more significant than we may think it is. And there's something so much more supernatural at play than perhaps through our rote, routine disciplines that we even think. But the other thing that I want to focus our attention on as we close is I want to bring us back to Jesus Because all of this is to reflect him. Because though he was rich, made himself poor. So that by his poverty, he may make each and every one of us rich towards God. I want to pray for us this morning. and We're going to respond by singing. And I just want to ask ask you to be praying this morning and reflect in your hearts and what God has taught you to do today. You've heard the application. Where does the Lord need to move you in your heart first towards giving? And then from a posture of gratitude and faithfulness in your heart, what would he lead you towards and practical outflowing of that? I want to pray for us and then we're going to sing. Father, thank you today for your grace. Father, I pray that you would increase inside of us a posture of gratitude. And the more and more and more that we are grateful to you, I pray that it would cause us to be more increasingly lavish in our giving towards you and others. Father, I pray for our church that when the world would look at us, even when we look at ourselves, that we would be known for generosity. Not because we're wealthy, not because we're just trying to do good works, but because we want to be like our Savior. So, Father, as Jesus is generous, make us generous. And I pray that as a result that you would use this small congregation in New England to make global impact for your name's sake across the globe. Help us, Father, make eternal investments as we manage your portfolio. And we pray all these things in your powerful name. Amen.